Our guest today is none other than Dr. Jennifer Doudna. She's a professor of biomedical science at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the co-discoverers of the revolutionary gene editing technique known as CRISPR. Dr. Jennifer Doudna, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Jennifer? Please do, Bill. It's great to be here. I think CRISPR is a wonderful example, honestly, of how technology often comes in from unexpected directions. And, and that's very much true with CRISPR. The actual acronym CRISPR is an acronym that describes this pattern of DNA sequences found in many bacteria. And the reason scientists even got interested in this in the first place is that they, well, first of all, it was very unusual to see a repetitive palindromic uh, sequence in, in DNA. That doesn't occur very often. And secondly, it turned really? out Really? In, in all the zillions of sequences? Well, uh, there aren't that many, really. Not sorry to interrupt, but that that seems weird. Well, not in a repetitive pattern like this. I think that was that's what was very distinctive. And the other thing, Bill, is that these palindromes they end up being a, a way that the cell remembers few, past virus infections because it's it's a it's a way the cell can actually store pieces of virus in a very special place, this CRISPR sequence in the genome that tells the cell, this is not part of my own genetic information. It's there to tell me when I need to be fighting back against a virus that shows up with that sequence. So your cells are using this, they're kind of storing this away as part of the training of the immune system? Yes, Yes. And this happens. And that's what yeah. led to all this. It did. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, there were there were just a back in the day, you know, there were just a handful of microbiology and, and bioinformatics, you know, DNA sequencing labs that were noticing these sequences. And I got involved in the field because I'm a biochemist. So I study molecules and how they work. And I have a particular interest in molecules called RNA that are kind of a chemical cousin of DNA and turn out to play a fundamental role in this CRISPR immune system in bacteria because they are the molecules that carry the information in the CRISPR sequence, in these you know, stored bits of viral sequence. They take that uh, sequence, it's copied into RNA, and then it's used, the RNA is used as a zip code to tell the cell, go to a DNA sequence that has this set of letters in it and destroy it. So why is this such a big deal? Right. That's where the, the technology comes in. Because, and this was what was so fascinating about being involved in this research in the beginning, is that I and my collaborator, Emmanuel Charpentier, started off studying CRISPR systems with this uh, fundamental curiosity about how they work as immune systems in bacteria. But our, our, our findings about a particular... Um, element in these CRISPR systems, a protein called Cas9, that is an RNA programmed enzyme. It's the actual little machine that looks through the cell, looks through all the DNA, looking for uh, viral uh, DNA to cut. When we figured that out, we realized that this Cas9 protein could be repurposed for something very different, which is why everybody's excited about it, namely as a genome editing tool. So why is it Cas9? Who is Cas? And why number nine? Why, why yeah, eight? Well. <laughs> why not eight? Right? Uh, well, um, it, Cas is CRISPR-associated. So it's uh, uh, lots of different versions so of it's Cas. A, a nested acronym. It is. 
and nine because there are a lot of different cast proteins. And number nine is the one that has the um, exciting activity that led to this genome editing tool. Then at what point did you realize what these things are, what they can do? Well, that was work that we published in the summer of 2012, so just just over eight years ago. Um, and that was uh, that work was really what blew open the the door for this technology because it showed that this protein Cas9 could be programmed with RNA molecules, and that you know bacteria do that. But importantly, we figured out how scientists could do that, right? And so we could actually tell this protein Cas9 to go to any sequence in uh, of, of, of 20 letters and uh, cut it and in the process trigger cells to repair the DNA in a way that makes changes at a site that's uh, dictated by the scientist. Just taking a step back, so the Cas9 protein can be programmed very analogous to way, the way you would program a you know, a text editor, it can look for a certain stretch of letters of DNA. And that's what we do um, in the laboratory is we program it using these molecules of RNA whose sequence we can control. And when Cas9 gets to that, finds those 20 letters, and this is the amazing thing, it looks through the, all of the DNA of the cell, finding a sequence that has this 20 letter match to its little RNA program. And when it finds that, it's a, it works like a molecular scissors. It makes a cut in the DNA, and then that triggers DNA repair that can change the DNA sequence. And scientists have various ways of controlling the way the DNA repair happens so that you can either make a very small change, even a single uh, base pair or letter in the DNA can be altered, or you can actually trigger cells to insert a whole new sequence at the site of the break. Okay, so you, okay, so you okay. have a find and replace function for DNA. Yes, thank you. Okay. All right, and, but <laughs> let me ask you this. The find and replace function uses a naturally occurring protein yes. that we call Cas9. Yes. And when the DNA repairs itself somehow, <laughs> it does that naturally. It does, yes. So hang on a second. How do you program RNA and how do you attach RNA to Cas9 protein? Is it liquid? Is it in a centrifuge? Is it under ultraviolet light? How the heck do we do this physically? Well, there are different ways to do it. So uh, the, uh, several different ways to do it. So you can introduce the Cas9 protein encoded in a piece of DNA that you put into cells or encoded in an RNA molecule, a messenger RNA molecule that you put into cells, or you can make the, you can, uh, there are different ways to produce the Cas9 protein in the laboratory. And then you can introduce the, the preformed protein into cells. So how do you form a protein? You, you go to Protein Co. and mix it up? Or uh, no, you, no. How is this done? No, we use little uh, bacterial factories. So we have bacteria uh. that uh, we can give the code to, and then they make Cas9 for us. And then we uh, purify it from them. Yeah. And where do I get that bacterium? Uh, it's easy to produce, Bill. We could come do it in your garage if you want. Oh, Great. Now we know what we're doing after this, uh, after this podcast. So, no, but really, uh, so what is it a bacterium found in my tummy, a bacterium found in the yeah. soil? In yeah, coli? no, no, no. It's, no, no it's, it's, it's like an E. coli or what E. coli. Is it? Yeah, it's a gut, human okay, it's gut bacterium. So it, it, yeah. it is a gut bacterium. Yeah. So, so let's say, uh, I know there, there are a lot of genetic diseases that are caused by a small number, or in some cases, just, just like a single, single point mutation yeah. in the DNA. So let's say 
I now have this wonderful tool. I want to give somebody gene therapy. This is something I've never exactly understood. How do I do that? Like, I, I know I want to correct every single piece of, you know, every, every DNA strand in your entire body. I have this machine. How do I get from the machine to fixing all of your DNA? Right. That's a great question. And, and, and the, I think a, a really good example that's actually a real world uh, case in point where CRISPR is currently being utilized is to correct the mutation that causes sickle cell disease. So I think a lot of people have heard of sickle cell anemia, and it results from a single base pair that is mutated in a human gene that encodes a protein called beta globin. It's the one of the primary proteins required for oxygen, carrying oxygen in red blood cells. This disease has been known for a very long time. It affects about 100,000 people in the U.S. and many, many more around the world. And even though we've known about this disease, we can diagnose it, we can do things to um, mitigate the, the very severe effects of the disease. We haven't had any way to actually uh, treat it or, or, or really certainly not to cure it until now. And so the way that CRISPR is being used to effectively cure people that have sickle cell disease is in one of two ways. One way, which has already been done uh, with a woman named Victoria Gray, and you may have seen, people may have seen uh, headlines about, about her, but she was treated with CRISPR over a year ago in a way that turned on production of a gene called fetal hemoglobin that makes a form of, of this uh, oxygen-carrying protein that's usually only made in when we're in uh, in utero, we're developing uh, as humans, but... We're, we're, just, um, we're just an oocyte or, or stem cell. That's right, or an embryo, yeah. you know, and then... Embryo, yeah. yeah. And then usually that gene gets turned off when, we, when we're born and then we grow up. But, but in Victoria Gray's uh, blood cells, the, what was done was to actually take blood cells from her body, from her bone marrow. These were, they're called stem cells, so they have the ability to reproduce. And they were treated with CRISPR in a way that turned on production of this fetal hemoglobin, which can restore oxygen-carrying function to her cells. And then those uh, treated cells were replaced into her bone marrow, and she is now effectively symptom-free, you know, a year later. So it's been very, very exciting to see that. Hang on. So yeah. you didn't replace all of her cells, just enough of them to make the difference. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. But here's the key. So these, um, these blood stem cells are not only able to proliferate, but they also are healthier than the cells that are not treated and have carry this defective hemoglobin, but don't have the fetal uh, hemoglobin being expressed. And so over time, the treated cells basically they take, take over. over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when you say healthier, how do you define a cell being healthier than another cell? And uh, the example that I'm thinking about is cancer. Right. You know, cancer cells just are great at making themselves. <laughs> Right. Well, in the case of this type of treatment, the uh, person receiving this treatment receives it as a bone marrow transplant. So actually mm -hmm. their, their existing cells are ablated first, and then this, these edited cells are reintroduced. So in that sense, they're healthier because they're alive and they're, you know, they're, they're able to reproduce where the cells that were irradiated. Oh, just ablated to me means burned off. Right. So somehow they're Yeah, they're destroyed. Yeah. I mean, when someone has a bone marrow transplant, that's typically what's done, right? And so, so in that case, uh, these edited cells are able to take over because they're introduced into the bone marrow after 
the, uh-huh. um, the afflicted cells have been removed. But they're also healthier in the sense that they're not uh, overwhelmed by this defective hemoglobin that causes the cells to have a sickled shape and to have a, a shorter lifetime in the body and cause a, all sorts of other problems. It's just so cool. Yeah. The mythic expression, medical miracle. Yeah. It's one of the mind-blowing moments. Yeah. There's a connection between malaria resistance and sickle cells. That's right. right? That's right. I just cannot help but wonder, does the gal who received these cells and they're healthier and they're making better hemoglobin for it, does she maintain her malaria resistance feature. Let's think about that. So in her case, uh, her cells, because of the way the gene editing was done, she is still producing the defective uh, beta globin in these cells. And so I, you know, it's a good question, Bill. I actually don't know what would happen, you know, in her case, if she were exposed to malaria, would she still have some resistance to it? I'm not sure. But you bring up a good point, because I think that this illustrates why a number of different types of uh, what we might call, you know, mutations have been persistent in the human population is because they, even though they might have um, some kind of, um, you know, disease phenotype under some conditions, they provide some kind of selective advantage. In this case, with the hemoglobin uh, mutation, it's uh, protection against malaria. And Bill, I think you've also set us up very nicely for an email that's come in. Do we have an email, yes. right? Alex Paulette writes, assuming we have the means to edit the genes of adult humans, what kind of effects would heavy editing have on the subject? Would their body be able to adapt to new instructions if they demanded very complex changes, such as new organs or bodily structures? My word. Yeah, we've, Alex. Yeah, we've seen some of that in science fiction, like like the fly. I mean, this thing, yeah, right, I think yeah, you know, right. it's, it's a common thing. Like, could you really significantly rewrite your DNA? In principle, I suppose you could. I think right now the technology isn't quite quite there yet. Um, people are working very hard on being able to make many edits at one time in cells and have those persist. Ah, yes. But that's still kind of at the, I would say, the bleeding edge of the technology. Let's talk briefly about my family. So uh, we have inherited something called ataxia, hereditary ataxia. Ataxi means uh, unable to taxi, unable to walk. And so my father had it real strongly. My sister has it real strongly. Hmm. And so it is caused almost certainly by a gene repeat, a repeating gene. And uh, people estimate that there are peep by people. Is Would it be possible for a CRISPR gizmo to go through your cells, find the repeat, eliminate the repeat in all your cells or in enough cells to make a difference? Or is that only possible when you're an embryo, when you're just a few cells? I guess that's another form of the same question. How many cells can you modify at once? Well, Bill, I think you put your finger on what I consider to be, you know, certainly one of, if not the most important uh, challenge for the field going forward is is I call it delivery. How do you get the gene editor into all the cells where you need editing, right? And that's that's really kind of rephrasing what you just said. And right now, that's that is a big challenge. It's actually one of the reasons why a disease like sickle cell is, in a way, much more tractable than lots of other genetic diseases. Because with a disease like sickle cell, it's a blood disorder where uh, it's possible to do the editing of cells that are removed from a person's bone marrow and then replaced. Whereas 
for most diseases, let's say cystic fibrosis is an example, right? That's a disease that primarily affects the lungs and you're not gonna be able to take lungs out and, you know, right? So you need to be able to um, do the editing in the cells of the lung. And the question there is how do you get the editor into enough of them where you can fix the, the, the mistake in the DNA so that the person is no longer symptomatic? Okay, so so what are the ideas? What are you what what are people thinking about that you might be able to do that? Well, I think the one of the primary ways that people are thinking about doing this is using a virus. And so there's a there's been a lot of work done over the last 10 or 20 years on different types of viruses that can deliver DNA into cells and as I think you both know and we're seeing this uh, up close and unfortunately sometimes personal with the coronavirus, you know, viruses are very good at infecting certain types of cells. That's what they do. And so there are, you know, there are some ways, very creative ways that you can engineer viruses to, instead of being dangerous and infecting and making more copies of themselves, you can engineer them to actually just deliver DNA into cells of interest for a therapy. And so that's, that's one of the primary ways that um, people are trying to deliver uh, CRISPR. But it's hard because the CRISPR protein is big, and so it's not very easy uh. to fit it into a virus. So the other way that people are doing it, and uh, there's some very exciting work going on at both uh, companies and in academic labs on this, is through what are called lipid nanoparticles. So these are very... Oh, yeah, your lipid, your lipid nanoparticles, Corey. Very little. Yeah, lipid I, I, I think we can make that in your, in your garage also, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so, uh, that might be harder. <laughs> yeah. So a lipid yeah. is a fat? A lipid is a, a fat. fat. Yeah, it's, I was going to say... And a nanoparticle is very small. Very small. So it's a little fat ball, basically. And the little fat ball uh, in, encloses the Cas9 protein, or, or you can do it with um, um, RNA. And uh, that's delivered into cells. And in fact, that can be a very effective way of delivering, especially into the liver, since the liver is an organ that naturally takes up these kinds of little fat balls quite easily. So the liver is the liver's there minding its own business. Nanoparticle through the blood comes to the liver. It's, it's a fat ball. The liver grabs the fat ball and in so grabbing also grabs the editing protein. Wow. Yes. Yeah. It's so cool. So this leads me to two things without even trying. The first one is an email from Peter Keating, who asked, do you foresee using genetic engineering to fight cancer by repairing the DNA so it doesn't have this cancer producing quality? That's a really appealing idea. The problem with it is that it gets back to this challenge of delivery, really. You know, how do you how do you make sure you fix every cancer cell? And I think, you know, we're, we're all familiar with the idea that cancer, even if you cut out a tumor or you treat it with a chemical uh, therapy, if you don't get every cell, it usually comes back. And I think that's the challenge with CRISPR. However, I have a lot of, of hope for using CRISPR to treat cancer in a less direct way where you edit not the cancer itself, but you edit the immune cells that are fighting cancer and you train them, you give, oh. give them the, 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 the know-how to go and find the tumor cells and kill those. And then the um, immune system is actually very good at doing that. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Speaking of immune system and modifying immune cells, have you all been working on this freaking COVID-19, this virus that's just causing so much trouble? Is there a way to modify our immune cells or guarantee the 
the uh, DNA or the RNA of a, of our T cells is such that it will recognize it and do its white cell, blood cell thing. That would be awesome. Um, that that <laughs> <laughs> I'd love I'd love to have that tool right now. Um, unfortunately, I think it's going to be be a while until CRISPR or any any version of CRISPR could be could be used to do what you just described. However. I do think CRISPR is actually going to be very useful for detection. So um, that's kind of what it does uh-huh. naturally is it detects uh, viruses. And so lots of scientists now, including including a academic partnership I'm involved in, is um, working on developing CRISPR as a, a rapid diagnostic for a coronavirus. So it could be faster oh. and more accurate than these than these PCR tests or the antibody tests that we're dealing with right now. Exactly. How involved are you all or the CRISPRians of the world in crops, in farming, agriculture? Oh, yeah, it's getting getting a lot of attention with CRISPR. Um, and and I, I have to say, I personally think that's the impact that will be the biggest with CRISPR is probably in agriculture because everybody's got to eat. And there's lots of opportunity to use a tool like CRISPR to make targeted changes in plants that will in, improve nutrition as well as allow plants to deal with the impacts of climate change. So like if you wanted to make something more heat resistant or more salt tolerant or something like that, you could, you could, you could do a very targeted gene insertion using CRISPR. Uh, gene insertions are harder or, in, in plants, or, okay. I'm sorry. but yeah. knockouts yes. are, you know, disruptions are easier and, you know, there's lots of research going on to try to improve the ability to make insertions, but that's that's a little bit farther out. So, so wait, so what what can you do by knocking things out? It turns out a lot. So uh, there's a lot a lot of opportunity there. So by by uh, knocking out genes, you can do things that will um, have impacts, like for example, changing the number of fr- flowers pr- produced by a tomato plant so that it makes more more tomatoes. And, uh, you know, there's lots of lots of really interesting uh, targeting CRISPR gene uh, targeting work that's going on right now that involve disrupting individual or sets of genes in plants that lead to desirable traits. And this is being done in rice and wheat and, you know, the important crop plants, but also in uh, plants that are just important in people's backyard gardens. Uh, where there's a market for it, if I may. So here, let me ask you this. In in the case of plants, in the case of seeds, you're dealing, instead of with an entire organism, when you're dealing with a plant seed, you just got that one packet of DNA, right? Does that make it easier or harder? Well, it probably makes it harder because um, plant cells are, are intrinsically more challenging for this whole issue of delivery of gene editing molecules. It's harder because they have a wall around them. They have a cell wall, so it makes it harder to get into the cell. But um, but if you can if you can do it, and, and definitely there are clever ways of doing it. Gene guns, for example, where you just sort of blast you know gold particles into these cells directly. That actually works remarkably well for a number of plants. And then you Wait, can hold actually... on. We need to back up for a second. Yeah. You just shoot. Yeah, you know, a gene gun shoot with the gold particles. Gold particles. <laughs> and the gold particles I've are presumably it. attached to proteins or attached to D- bits of DNA. Either one. You, yeah, just, you, basically, you, you literally just literally. Like, fire this at the plant and it gets into the cells? Yes. Some disclosure, Corey, I have seen it with my own eyes. Phew. Uh, so you, know, you, you know she's not working. making it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody's shooting gold at corn kernels. That's for sure. I don't think it was for show, but this gets into, for me, 
the the big, big, giant question that so many people ask in a sort of science fiction kind of way, there are people who just don't like genetically modified crops because they just don't like them. Because right. It's somehow it's un- against nature. It's it's not it's unnatural. Uh, yeah. yeah, somehow. All right. And then this takes us to an email from Carly Williams, who says, uh, a 15 year old in Texas. I was listening to NPR a month ago. She's a 15 year old listening to NPR and thinking about genes. So about we're, we're doing okay. genetic engineering. Yeah, we're doing OK. Those these are our people. The main topic of discussion was how the idea of a, quote, perfect baby, unquote, could enable an even more divisive class issue because of genetic engineering and this cost. My main three questions are, as a scientist, is this class division idea considered while researching and experimenting? Two, how far is genetic engineering projected to go? parenthetically, can it alter genes that make one smarter or more fit for a certain role in life? Or three, is there an estimated cost for genetic engineering access yet? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Carly. Carly. (laughs) Well, uh, for the first question about, you know, do do, do scientists think about the impact of their work, like the long-term, you know, ethical impact of their work when they're in the lab researching? I think the truth is mostly, most of the time we don't, right? Because most of the time we're way down in the weeds doing some little, you know, little experiment and you're hoping it works and you're not really thinking about, you know, what's, what's the impact 25 years from now of this thing. Um, however, I think with gene editing, you know, it, it certainly has been clear for a while that there are some profound ethical questions like the one you're raising about this technology. And so I've been involved since, you know, for several years, really, in, in uh, thinking about this and working with international groups on the appropriate ways to regulate and, and control the use of gene editing, especially for editing human beings in the way that you're talking about. But the reality is that, you know, you asked how far can it go? I think that right now the technology is not ready for use in embryos and uh, in human embryos. And so I don't think that we're going to see a lot of CRISPR babies uh, anytime soon because, you know, not, not only because it's wrong to do that, I feel, for, you know, the society is not, has not addressed the, 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 a lot of the ethical issues there, but also just the technology isn't, isn't ready for that. But, you know, in the long term, I think that um, the reality is I think this is coming. And I think that's why it's very important to be discussing it and figuring out how we're going to manage this technology going forward, including for those kinds of applications. And then that brings up the, the, the question of cost, you know, and how, how do we make sure that technologies, and this is a very general, I think, question for any technology, is how do we make sure that new technologies are used equitably and made affordable to people? And we, just thinking back to even the, even the sickle cell disease example we talked about earlier, the issue there that I see, the big one, you know, it's very, very exciting to see uh, this uh, cure of Victoria Gray, but how are we going to pay for that for all the people that need it and make sure they get access to it? Because right now that technology is over a million dollars. And so it's just not realistic, you know, and so. No, no. But why, why is it so expensive? Because in principle, what you're describing yeah. sounds like something that could be mass produced, you know, mm-hmm. kind of made into a medical assembly line process. Yeah. Yeah. An office visit with your physician. Yeah. Be nice. yeah is that a possibility that, that, you know, basically you'll get a DNA shot or a nano lipids or whatever it is, that, you know, that instead of a pill, you get a, you know, a sort of a CRISPRized equivalent. 
is that a possible future? It is, and I and it's a future I am I am working towards uh, w- with with everything I, I have because I think it's very exciting, and I think that for this, for, especially for this particular example, uh, as we talked about earlier, right now CRISPR has to be delivered to someone who has sickle cell disease using a bone marrow transplant. But imagine a day when there's technology for delivery that doesn't require that. So that's that's a huge cost right there. And also, uh, of course, a you know, huge uh, cost to the person, not only financially, but you know, to the person who's being treated. Imagine that you didn't have to do that and you had either a virus or a nanoparticle or something else that you could just take either as a pill or a one-shot injection. That or a could, transfusion, maybe. Or yeah. a, right, could get to the cells that need editing and, and not bother anybody else. I think this would be really awesome. And I think it's possible. This is what I'm working to do. And but what about the armies of mindless jackbooted stormtroopers that re- <laughs> emerge from a crazed CRISPR developer? I, I think for those, you need to go to the movies. <laughs> but to uh, Carly Williams's point, science fiction stories are replete with this idea that the mindless jackbooted stormtroopers, which are created genetically and work for the mastermind, brilliant person who's bent on taking over the world and so on. You're mentioning that we should be addressing this now. We should be thinking about these sort of ethical questions now. Why shouldn't we be afraid of armies of jackbooted stormtroopers? Well, if you can tell me uh, the genes I need to edit to make those uh, jackbooted stormtroopers, um, I'll join you in your garage. But, you know, <laughs> you know, I think I think that the reality is that there's just there's there's so many things technically that would have to happen to make that possible that it's not not going to happen in any real time frame that I can imagine. However, I do think that we do have to be aware that now that you know, human beings have a technology for changing DNA in human embryos that can permanently alter the code of life and, and change, you know, not only that person's DNA, but all of their, their kids and their kids' kids. Uh, this, this is really a profound thing. And it kind of, you know, it's reminiscent in, in one scenario of eugenics and kind of, you know, this idea of, uh, trying to engineer human beings to look or act or be a certain way. And so, again, I don't think the technology would even enable that. Even if we wanted to do that today, it's not going to, going to enable that. But in the future, it could, right? And so I think this is where we need to be very cautious. Well, hold on. Let me ask a more sort of focused example. Bill mentioned ataxia, or you mentioned cystic fibrosis. Yeah. Are these things that are very difficult to correct when you're dealing with an adult. But yeah. in principle, if you're dealing with just a sperm and an egg cell, you could correct those at that level. Correct. Are we close to being able to do that? And how do you feel about the ethics of that, of, of editing the sperm and the egg or editing just the egg to get rid of what would seem like a very desirable thing to like eliminate these disastrous genetic repeats? You know, this this question reminds me of an early, you know, when I was, uh, I had the very first meeting on the ethics of human genome editing back in January of 2015. And uh, we had, you know, we had that a group wasn't of, that long ago. Jennifer. No, that I was know. not that long ago. It's amazing, right? I, yeah, this is not, yeah, a, right yeah, now this is still a, long a very, ago, but. it does. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, still a very new technology. But yeah, so this was a small meeting and, 
And we discussed exactly that kind of scenario. You know, could you imagine using CRISPR to correct a disease-causing mutation in an egg or sperm or, or embryo that would lead to, um, you know, a person having a healthy life who might have otherwise been afflicted by a terrible disease? And there was lots of debating about this. And, you know, what about this? What about that? And finally, somebody leaned across the table and said, well, you know, we may get to a day when we would consider it unethical not to do that. And it really kind of flipped the whole conversation on its head. So I, I, I certainly appreciate that there are scenarios where, you know, you could imagine uh, germ cell or embryo editing to be beneficial from a health perspective. I just think that, you know, we have to be very cautious as we advance the technology in that direction because of the uh, jackbooted stormtrooper scenario. You just threw out the word germ cell which is a fine word, that is as opposed to a somatic cell yes. or a body cell? Yes, yeah. yes. Can you, would you explain that just a little? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a germ cell um, means a cell that has the ability to develop into a whole organism. So it's a, a sperm or an egg cell. and uh, Or a corn, corn kernel. Corn kernel, exactly, right, uh, yeah. And uh, so these are, these are all, all germ cells. But that's they're different from somatic cells, which are fully differentiated. They've kind of reached the end of their developmental pathway, and they're not going to be capable of developing into a whole organism. Science Rules will be right back. You're listening to Science Rules. Do you think it's time to have regulations already, or is it still nascent to the point where it's not relevant? I think it's difficult to do that right now because it, it's a bit early still, but I, I favor, I think the World Health Organization had the right idea, at least. People still are debating about the right way to implement it, but I think their idea is let's at least start with a registry you know, sort of for transparency so that for people that are working on editing human embryos or, or sperm or egg cells, they sign up and there's a public kind of database that can be viewed and everybody can see who's doing what. And I think that that's, I, I kind of like that idea because I think it it lends an air of openness and, um, you know, societal discussion to the, this whole area of research that I think is valuable. When you say the technology isn't there yet, what isn't there yet? Do we not do we not even really know how to do it? Do we not know how to do it safely? I mean, there certainly are people who are thinking about how to edit and do a designer baby. What's the yeah. what are the technological hurdles and how are we talking about five years, 10 years, 20 years? How far away are we? I would say that we don't know how to do it safely, that's for sure, and uh, we don't really understand enough about the fundamental science of the way that sperm or egg or embryo uh, cells repair their DNA. And so that's, that's actively being researched right now, and I, I think there's a lot of really interesting fundamental science to come from that. It's certainly too early, in my opinion, to be editing embryos and implanting them to create a pregnancy. Um, and, you know, that's something that just shouldn't happen right now because we're just, you know, it's not, it's certainly not safe to do. And like we were discussing, I don't think there's been the opportunity yet for kind of ethical considerations. So as a mechanical engineer or a guy, a tinkerer, I have always been fascinated with image 51, where Rosalind Franklin 
got this X-ray crystallography image that enabled people, probably herself, along with the mythic Watson and Crick, to infer the shape of DNA. To me, and help me out here, a protein is a molecule where its physical shape affects how it interacts with other uh, chemicals and other molecules, along with its whatever else you might have in conventional or fundamental chemistry, its uh, a number of electrons, valence electrons, frontier electrons, blah, blah, blah. So how much X-ray work do you have to do to figure out what you're doing and how much of it was, for lack of a better term, chemical reactions? Well, as I mentioned in the very beginning of this uh, conversation, so I I guess I would define myself primarily as a biochemist. So, but, but the word chemist in there really does mean that we think about molecules, right? We just think about biological molecules. And part of our our investigations almost always involve thinking about the shape and the structure of those biological molecules. And you alluded to the fact that just like Rosalind Franklin used for discovering the structure of DNA, even today, you know, scientists like me use X-ray crystallography. We use X-rays to understand the structures of these molecules. So we do that routinely in our research laboratory. And nowadays, in addition to using X-rays, we, also, we actually also use electrons in the form of electron microscopy. So combination of these methods allow us to see molecules and understand what they do by looking at what they look like. Well, and so, so in terms of those, the, the near-term implications of CRISPR, you mentioned specific therapies like sickle cell. You talked about the potential in agriculture. Where else do you see CRISPR having a big impact? I think it's going to be a very, very big impact in um, manipulating microbes and uh, doing that in both in their natural habitats as well as in industrial settings where we want to, as you probably know, microbes are used all the time in in, uh, industrial laboratories to make everything from drugs that humans take to uh, chemicals that are utilized in, in various manufacturing processes. So imagine that you could now much more easily and trivially give them the DNA code they need to make useful molecules. I think that's that's certainly going to be a big impact. But also, I'm actually very excited about the potential to use CRISPR to edit microbes that are growing in their natural habitats, whether it's the natural habitat of the human gut or the soil or or anywhere else. And so this is an area of research that I think is just kind of starting to open up, but I I think has a lot of potential. So you'll have microbial jackbooted E. coli (laughs) storming through your... your... No, but what's one you want to modify? Think about the, you know, think about the human gut microbiome. I think there's still a lot of, you know, very fundamental work that's being done on this. But, you know, when I was uh, in school and learning biology, we were, you know, we were taught about how many cells might be in the human body, et cetera, et cetera. But nobody had any clue that there were actually many, many more um, bacterial cells in the human body than human cells. And so they're along for the ride. They're along for the ride. And they're probably fundamental to our our health in many ways. And, you know, there's increasing evidence, for example, that the human gut microbiome affects things like our brain function and, you know, Alzheimer's disease development and things like that. So 
I think there's a lot of really interesting biology there. But, you know, it's been very hard to do that science because right now most of my most um, research on bacteria involves scientists collecting those bacteria and then culturing them in the lab. And usually they're cultured in one uh, you know, one strain of bacteria will be grown, but that's not a monoculture, a monoculture, yeah. but yeah. it doesn't reflect how they live in their native environment. So I'm, I'm really interested in exploring the biology of these kind of ecosystems of microbes in a way. So this is another s- sort of long-term question, but maybe a little, a little more pointed. People worry about running out of antibiotics of what's going to happen when this whole medicine chest of antibiotics we have right now is no longer effective against uh, the bacteria out there. Uh, and we have a very limited pool of, of antivirals, as we're all seeing with with, uh, with COVID. Could CRISPR be one of the successors to this? You know, is it, could you see a future in which we basically you know, engineer ourselves to be immune to things rather than fighting them piecemeal with, with drugs? Yeah, I, I think so. And um, to do that, you'd have to know how to, how to do the editing, what genes need to be tweaked or introduced in those immune cells. But I do think that as we learn more and more about viruses and, the, and, and, and bacteria that are infecting humans, that we'll gain that knowledge. And then, you know, using that together with the tool that you have to do the reprogramming, you can see it happening in the future. God, it's another example. You know, uh, this is the most exciting time in human history. I mean, this is the, all the, with all the trouble we've got, and we've got troubles, to be sure. But the things that are going on in the life sciences are just astonishing. It's just astonishing. The world is changing in such a cool way in, in, in this regard. Hey, Corey. Oh, wait, Bill. Corey. I hear something. Ah, yes. It's thunder. It's a crackling, it's thunder, rumbling, thunderous sound. The thunderous sound of lightning indicating that we are entering a lightning round. Quick question, quick answer from you in the exciting lightning round of science rules. What is the most misunderstood part of your work? The most misunderstood part of my work is that I'm not researching how to create human beings with CRISPR or modify plants. I'm actually studying how the molecules themselves work. Okay, people, it's molecules. You're not making an army of stormtroopers. No. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Thank you for the clarification. So uh, if you weren't doing this, what other academic field of study would you be involved in? I've fantasized about a lot of things. I I think I'd be in architecture. I I love building things, you know, and I could imagine building buildings or at least designing them. And the shape of molecules, the shape of buildings. It's of a piece. (laughs) All right. If you could edit out one of your own personal traits, what would it be? Uh, probably my impatience gene. I always want, want, to, <laughs> want to do things faster than they can probably really get done. Along with CRISPR, do you have any, any other scientific discovery in mind over the last 10 years that you think is going to have a huge effect on uh, humankind? Can I mention two? One is one is um, what I would call uh, immunotherapy. So this is not necessarily using CRISPR, although it could. But this is the idea that you can train immune cells to go after cancer and potentially after other kinds of disease cells in the body in the future. I think that's really very very exciting, very transformative. And the other is imaging and being able to see 
not only molecules, but seeing very detailed structures in cells that are collections of molecules at really high resolution. I think that's also transforming certainly everything that I think about and and most people in, in the biological sciences. In the same way Rosalind Franklin's image changed everything. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, here you go. These are, I think, are easy ones. Gattaca, the film Gattaca. Do you love it or hate it? Love it. <laughs> All right. Now, what about Jurassic Park? Love it or hate it? Love it. Hey, this is just fantastic, Jennifer. Thank you for joining us, talking about genetic engineering and, and I guess, the future of humankind. Yeah, good Everyone. stuff. Thank you for being here. Our guest today has been Dr. Jennifer Doudna. She's a professor of biomedical science at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the co-discoverers of the CRISPR gene editing technique. 